0: Well, here we are on the morning of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Tomorrow, of course, as was mentioned, is no longer the Feast of Tabernacles, but a special holy day with a very great and glorious meaning that you will hear about tomorrow. But this morning, I would like to reflect on an event that occurs at the end of the millennium, on the day that is represented by today. It's an event which we should keep in mind and one that will help us understand just how much we need to be on guard as we head back into the world to continue our lives, our schooling, and our relationships that we have there. The seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles represents the end of the thousand-year millennium of the rule of Jesus Christ and his saints on the earth, a time that will produce unprecedented prosperity and peace. We read of many scriptures, and you've read of many of those scriptures at this Feast of Tabernacles, in in which they describe a very beautiful world. And yet, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the days of the temple, in the temple compound, there was a hymn, actually two hymns, sung by the choir of Levites on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is according to a research done by Alfred Edersheim, Uh, called The Temple, Its Ministry and Services. And I'd like to look at those two hymns today because you have them in your Bible. The first hymn that was sung by the Levitical choir at the service on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles was Psalm 12. It's a psalm of David. And you can turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 12, And we might wonder why this psalm was sung at the end of a glorious time of celebration. You will note in Psalm 12, verse 1, Help, Lord, the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, and the word can mean humble, For the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, and I will set him in safety, the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Now, does that sound like the millennium? It sounds like the time before God's intervention on the earth. We could see how verse 8 might apply to our day. But why should such a psalm be used on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles? What Possibly, could it be referring to? We are told in Scripture that after the return of Christ and the saints to the earth on the Feast of Trumpets, eventually the events of the Day of Atonement occur when Satan is bound and put away for a period of time. You will note in Revelation chapter 20 Revelation, the 20th chapter, and verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to a bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into a bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. At the end of the millennium, Satan is released. And he causes much havoc on the earth. Revelation 20, verse 7. And it says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, all peoples really, Gog and Magog, specially named, to gather them together whose number is of the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. And fire came down from from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, there are many questions with regard to those pieces of scripture. First of all, why would God allow this destructive being to be loose again? After all he did, during the first 6,000 years of man? And secondly, why would a people who have enjoyed the peace and beauty of what the millennium is pictured to be, who have been taught nothing but God's way of life and have seen the fruit of that way of life, suddenly, so violently, turn against God and those who follow God? You know, I think this prophecy from your Bible emphasizes the power of the being known as Satan. This is why he has to be put away, to allow the millennium to be peaceful. Otherwise, there would be no peace. An acquaintance of mine, a man whom I've met several times, is the former commander of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. His name is Colonel Gray. And Colonel Gray was deployed as a battalion commander of the 1st Battalion of the PPCLI in Bosnia in the early 1990s. And his regiment was involved in one of the biggest land battles in Bosnia as he defended the Serbs from the Croats who were trying to exterminate the Serbs in their region. It was called the Battle of the Milizia Pocket. The Serbian War was an interesting model that might help us understand what takes place at the end of the millennium. Yugoslavia, after World War II, was ruled by a dictator named Tito, And General Tito ruled that country with an iron hand. He was nominally communist, although Yugoslavia was the most open country in the Eastern Bloc. They also became the most prosperous country in the communist bloc. But after Tito's death, things seemed to move along okay for a while. The Olympic Games were even held in Uh, in Yugoslavia at that time. There was much economic and social interchange between all the populations of, of the region. And the region was made up of people from different ethnic groups, largely Muslims from Bosnia and Kosovo. There were Orthodox Christians or Serbs in Serbia and Roman Catholics in Croatia and other people's. The religious divisions, while they existed, were not the barrier they once were. And generally, people lived together relatively peacefully, many of them intermarried. And then suddenly, as Colonel Gray explained to me, within a time period of not more than two weeks... Two weeks, it all came apart. Next-door neighbors, even some whose children had intermarried, began to kill one another. It started when Muslim Bosnians and the Catholic Croatians began a program of ethnically cleansing Serbs from Croatia and Bosnia. And then the Serbs responded in kind and started to cleanse their areas of Muslims and Croats. Strangely, the Western media took the side against the Serbs. Even when NATO commanders, like General Mackenzie of the Canadian Army, complained that the Serbs were actually largely the victims. And the United Nations fired him. And you may remember that in the Canadian news. However, what ensued was a bloody war with hundreds of thousands ending up dead, wounded, or displaced. Colonel Gray told me this was a very strange thing. He said everything was so peaceful and relatively prosperous, and suddenly a mood of anger rose up among the people, swept over the population, and gentle people suddenly acted with brutality. Yugoslavia is not the only example of this occurrence. Rwanda, about the same time, experienced similar consequences leaving millions dead. You know, the same can be said for what occurred in Germany in the 1930s. A very liberal society, well-educated, populated by a people trying to get through tough economic times, was suddenly taken over by a band of thugs. And eventually Adolf Hitler came to power. And the whole mood of a country changed. Two years ago, I requested that a lecture be given at an institute of which I'm chairman in Edmonton. The man I requested the lecture, uh, provide the lecture, was a Dr. Brian Evans. Dr. Evans had been the first diplomat sent to China by the government of Pierre Trudeau in 1972... When Canada opened relations with Communist China. He was one of the most famous scholars on the middle on the Far East. And he mentioned in his lecture that prior to the nineteen thirties, the Japanese army had a reputation for strict discipline and never performing atrocities against civilians. And yet, in the 1930s, at the same time in Germany when Hitler was rising to power, Dr. Evans said that the mood of the Japanese army changed. And they began to commit unspeakable atrocities in China and elsewhere. You see, a change of mood just happened with violent consequences. And whether it's Yugoslavia or Rwanda or Cambodia or Germany or Japan or a host of other examples, one cannot explain that sudden change of behavior in human terms. There is a spirit world led by a spirit who is a vicious tyrant, Notice Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, the second chapter, verse 1. Paul begins here by continuing from chapter 1, and he says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We are given a new life when God calls us and we respond to that calling. And we repent and are baptized for forgiveness. We are given a new life, a forgiven life. God places his spirit in us. And we really do have a new lease on life, eternal life. In which you once walked, he said, the sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And he writes, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. We cannot look down on anyone in the world who may be committing things with which we disagree, because we were once there. God mercifully called us out of that. And we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Satan broadcasts his ideas, his thoughts, his feelings, his moods. And he can cause sudden depression? If you suddenly start for no reason feeling terribly depressed, I suggest you pray about it, because that's an influence, especially when there's no reason to be depressed. Sometimes it's a feeling of anger, or a feeling of hatred, or a feeling of jealousy. Those are Satan's moods. You see, he is a jealous, angry, hateful being. And he must be very depressed. Because his way of life leads to that. And he tries to cause us to feel the same way. And he tries to cause us to act against the holy law of God. Bosnia was just one example of what happens when Satan uses his power to influence and twist the minds of people. To do his destructive will. And it's not just in those other nations. I can go back in history to English kings like Henry V, who was one of the most brutal monarchs, brutal individuals in English history, and conducted his brutality not just in England, but also in France during the Hundred Years' War. He was a vicious man, and he was led by a wrong spirit. But this is the kind of thing that happens at the end of the millennium. Now, one might ask, will not these people have been warned of this impending problem by the saints and Jesus Christ? Of course they will. Notice Amos chapter 3. The book of Amos, chapter 3, and verse 7. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And the prophet doesn't keep a secret. (laughs) There is no point in revealing something to a prophet if the prophet isn't going to teach it. Of course, people will be taught. They will be warned. That statement is true. And these physical beings who live in the millennium will have experienced a nearly perfect life. They will have had it pretty good. They will have read during their feasts about the meaning of the holy days, they will have lived in a time of prosperity. They will have an abundance of food, beautiful homes and surroundings. They will lack nothing. The Bible even tells us their health will be wonderful without disease. Their lives will be long. I can only speculate on the lengths of their lives. There are many different possibilities. We might mention that in a moment. But what is certain is that these humans alive at the end of the millennium will be tested. Just as you and I are tested. And God will see which way they go when a powerful enemy is released. Perhaps that's the reason for the release. Again, we can only speculate. But in any case, it is certain that man will be warned by God that this eventuality will occur. And man will, in the millennium, be very carefully be guided by the family of God. And teaching will be diligent. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 20. Isaiah 30 and verse 20. And it says, speaking of us in this age, going into the millennial period, and though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes will see your teachers. And speaking of the people living in the millennium, it says, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or the left. They will be guided. God will ensure they are guided. And thus the millennium will be close to a perfect condition, which raises many questions about why Satan is released and why his release will have such dreadful effect. Now questions are often asked about how long people live in the millennium. The Bible does not tell us. You know, some trees on this earth have a long life. There are trees that may live 20, 30 years and then, you know, fall over. There are others. I know in Spain I saw olive trees that are over 1,000 years old and still producing olives. Some pine trees in parts of the United States are 4,000 years old. They can live a long time. Bristlecone Pines. We don't have a clear biblical answer to the question of how long people live in the millennium. There are only two possibilities. One is that man will live in the millennium and once God judges the readiness of a person's character, that person may be born into the family of God. Alternatively, the idea has been expressed that since in the days of Adam, man lived almost a thousand years, according to the scriptures, that might be restored. And they might live throughout the millennium and be tested at the end. We can only speculate. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. If it was important for us to know, we'd know. But it's interesting, however, that only the persons who will have lived in the beginning of the millennium, who have gone through some tribulation, would have experienced the pulls of Satan. Those millions and millions of people who will yet be born in the millennial period, will not have experienced that. And perhaps they need to be tested when Satan is released. So how can Satan so effectively and so quickly work his power of deception? It appears the leaders of the rebellion, when it happens, may come from the lands of Gog and Magog, which are the peoples of the East. We also learn from Ezekiel 39 that Gog is the leader of the tribes of Mesach and Tubel. And Ezekiel implies in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that not only Gog and Magog, the leaders, will come, but they will draw many nations against the territory around Jerusalem. The question, however, that we need to consider is how can Satan inspire such hatred against God, the God family, and Israel, in a world that is very peaceful and prosperous? Well, I mentioned in some sermons that Satan's main tools, what does Satan work with? Every workman has tools. Tools were needed to build this beautiful lectern. Satan also needs tools. And Satan's tools are jealousy, lust, greed, and anger. That's what he works with. He creates feelings. It's not fair, is a big one of his moods. I deserve better. I'm entitled to better. It's not right that they have more than I do. Those are the kinds of moods he works with. And thus, we may be able to speculate a potential source for the motivation that Satan uses to get so many people upset that they will take part in a rebellion against God And attack Israel at the end of the millennium, as the Bible predicts. You know, in the law of God, the firstborn was to receive a double portion. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 15. Now, we don't have two wives anymore. (laughs) God never wanted that. But nonetheless, this is an interesting law. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved, the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn is the son of her who is unloved, Then it shall be, on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons, he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved woman in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. He shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion. Of all he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and the right of the firstborn is his. In Israel, when a man died, the firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance. Now, my wife and I have two sons. When I read that scripture, my youngest son was not amused. <laughs> But that is the law. Now, it was the law for a number of reasons, as we'll discuss. But in other places in the Bible, Israel is called God's firstborn among the nations. Um, Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And verse 22. It says, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The various tribes of Israel were a people who were considered God's firstborn. If you go to Isaiah 61, Isaiah the 61st chapter, and verse 7. It says this, Isaiah 61, verse 7. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Speaking of a blessing to be given to Israel in the millennium, Israel will get a double portion And even within the nations of Israel, Ephraim gets a double portion. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Verse 9. It says, They shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Interesting. Now, some other tribes of Israel might say, wait a minute, that's not fair. <laughs> well, why did God have that law of the double portion? You see, it wasn't just the fact that they got twice as much. When God gives a blessing, He expects something in return. Simply because the double portion carried with it double responsibility. In the family, the oldest boy received a double portion as he was charged with the duty of looking after the parents. And the parents, when they were no longer able, were cared for by that firstborn. There was responsibility of family leadership and all that went with it, including protection of property and ensuring all the other brothers and sisters had their needs met to help them out when they got in trouble. There was a lot of responsibility on the firstborn. And with the nation of Israel, Israel will have a double responsibility of all the other nations. They will be the example to the world and the world will come to them to learn how they should live. And it appears that Ephraim will have a strict responsibility to provide sound, loving and consistent righteous example. When God gives responsibility, accountability comes with it. In any case, Israel will be the wealthiest nation in the world in the millennium. And it's quite possible that Satan will start immediately upon his release to sow seeds of dissatisfaction with that arrangement. It's not fair. Why do they have so much? Why do we have to take direction from those Israelites? What are we, second class? Now they forget that they're all blessed, they're all healed, they're all rich, they're all protected. But that's just the way God set it up, because there's an accountability that goes on Israel if they don't do the job. But Satan will begin to sow grievance and jealousy, and he'll turn jealousy to bitterness, and bitterness to anger, and anger to hatred. And when greed and jealousy and anger dominate our emotions, the next casualty is wisdom. Wisdom is incompatible with anger and hatred and jealousy because they destroy wisdom. You know, we can be very intelligent and very unwise. Some people are very intelligent and do dumb things. If we permit ourselves to dwell on jealousy or grievance of some kind, then we are not living by the precepts of God and wisdom is eroded. And without wisdom, we are fair game for Satan. Satan will turn that emotion into a desire for war. And these people have not learned war. The Bible says they will not learn war in the millennium. But Satan will inevitably have them develop some kind of strategy and weaponry and create in them a false confidence that is so easy to muster when wisdom is absent and when you create a mob mentality. And these people, under Satan's influence, will lose perspective of reality. Satan did. Satan doesn't have a perspective of reality. He thinks he can still possibly destroy God. He is going to try once more, the prophecies say that. And he will lose yet another war. Psalm 12, as we read earlier, is very much a reference to the mindset that develops in those who permit Satan's influence to override all the teaching they have had in the millennium. It is a warning. If you go back to chapter 12 of the book of Psalms and look at verse 2. Now, this is sung by the priests in the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, They speak idly, carelessly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart. That's a satanic attitude. Verse 4 Who have said, With our own tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? That's an attitude of Satan. Verse 8 The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted. When a nation starts to promote sin as good, the wicked will prowl on every side. We see that happening in our own people today. Thus, so will it be. And it will become dangerous for righteous people and the period at the end of the millennium. The righteous who reject Satan's influence will see the problems encroaching which God will, for a reason, permit for a while. We do not know how long this period of Satan's freedom is. It says it's a short time, but the Bible doesn't give us any further explanation. But they will see the light of truth going out and a darkness settling in in many areas of the earth. Just as Winston Churchill, before World War II, he once gave a speech and he said, you know, the lights are going out all over Europe. And no one paid attention to him. He could see it happening. You know, notice now the second hymn that was sung on the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last day of the feast. It comes from Psalm 82, the 82nd Psalm. This was sung after a period of time during that last service. Psalm 82, to Psalm of Asaph. And he starts out in verse 1. Very interesting statement, especially when you know the period it's referring to at the end of the millennium. It says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty and he judges among the gods. Interesting statement. What does that mean? He judges among the Elohim. That's the Hebrew there. You know, he has a family. Just as animals are of the animal kind and plants are of the plant kind and angels are of the angel kind, so those born into the family of God are of the God kind. You in the future will be an Elohim. That's what this is saying. Referring to the children of God and God discussing the matter with his children. And here God raises a question because there's a great problem on the earth. And the righteous seem to be experiencing difficulty due to this rebellion Satan is causing upon his release. Verse 2, he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor. Again, the word can be humble there. Deliver the poor and the needy Free them from the hand of the wicked. Now, if this truly does represent the period of Satan's rebellion at the end of the millennium, the same conditions Satan has created in this age seem to be repeated. And man, when they give themselves over to Satan's thinking, become foolish. And they become agents easily to deceive. They've given up truth. And the earth again is shaken. Verse 5. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are unstable. And then in verse 6 and 7, we see something that is very sobering. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. You are told in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 that we are told that God will, in times to come, pour his spirit on all flesh. We are told elsewhere, as as quoted undoubtedly at this feast, that God's spirit will be in everyone in the millennium, making everyone who is of age a potential member of the God family, a conceived child of God. Yet though unborn, just as we are today, we are still considered God's children today. Yet when they make a choice between Satan's ways and the ways of God and those who choose to deliberately abandon God's way, knowingly and unrepentantly, rebelling against God under Satan's influence, they will lose that spirit. And hence he says of all those people who were potential members of the God family, you are God's. And all of you children are the Most High, but you will die like men. Now, this may seem a bit of a depressing message at the end of a wonderful feast. But that rebellion led by Satan is a prophesied event. And shortly thereafter, Satan and his demons are removed forever. As it is indicated in Scripture, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And never again will he or his wicked demons be a problem. But God will also need to know the character of those who have lived during the millennium and who can be trusted with eternal life. And those who can be trusted will be converted into eternal beings and join the God family at some point. Then, of course, comes the next phase of God's plan, which is the great resurrection of all who have ever lived and never had an opportunity those who have experienced Satan's pulls, but that, of course, is a subject for tomorrow. But what can we learn from this tragic story that ends the period we call the millennium? Every one of us is going to leave this place after the last great day and return to our homes, our families, our places of employment, our schools, and all of us will face trials of some different sort. In some cases, it may be a health issue. In some cases, a hostile family member, angry about you keeping God's law. In some cases, employers who didn't want you to leave for the Feast of Tabernacles. I know what that's like because I lost my first teaching job as a school teacher over the Feast of Tabernacles. And it can be a bit of a, it's uh, upsetting, (laughs) you know, especially if you have a wife and, uh, a little baby, and you lose your job. But as Mr. Grovac pointed out, you put truth against pressure, you follow truth. God will never curse obedience to him. He will bless it. In some cases, there may be school situations where one has to catch up on work or exams that you may have missed. But in addition, there's a general environment in the world that we're going back to, an environment or culture fundamentally opposed to the truth of God and the values you've heard expressed this week. And this is all because we currently live in a world that is ruled by the same being who will be released and create havoc at the end of the millennium. Now, there is a lesson for us as we prepare to return home from the events of the week that has described the beauty of the millennium. Just as Satan will be released upon the world at the end of the millennium, so we return to that world. We have been sheltered here from the influences of the world in this very beautiful and peaceful place where our needs are met and those around us are friendly and supportive. But just as Satan will be released to test man at the end of the millennium, so we return to a world that is ruled by that tyrant. So how do you manage to survive spiritually in this coming year? How will you avoid bitterness and anger and hatred? How will we fight the tendency to jealousy or self-pity or having some sense of entitlement? How will we manage to fend off the constant broadcasting of the prince of the power of the air as he tries to distract and deceive us and lead us to reject God's way and fall under the penalty of death? We are indeed engaged in a war, a deadly war, where the stakes are nothing less than life and death. And one lesson that is very important to a soldier in combat is don't get separated from your unit. Once you're alone, you're much more vulnerable. And when we thus return to our home areas, we need to keep contact with our fellow soldiers in Jesus Christ. We need to keep contact with the unit, the Church of God. And thus, as times get more challenging, God, through the Apostle Paul, gives us explicit instruction. In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews the 10th chapter, in verse 23, we read, Let us, Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is trustworthy. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Think about our brethren. Think about our brethren's needs. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. We rely on each other's encouragement that's very very important paul gives us some orders here these aren't suggestions this is an order written by the apostle paul under the influence of god the father and he tells us be unwavering in our commitment to the truth show concern and mercy to one another you know be be very quick to overlook an offense One of the things Satan likes to do is have someone offend you and then we get, as we say in English, I don't know how they're going to translate that, our nose is out of joint. (laughs) That's an idiom. (laughs) But we can be offended very easily. Don't be offended. Remember that person may not be intending to defend you. At least give them the benefit of the doubt and our lives will be happier overlook offense encourage each other and it's impossible to do unless you are around one another at least once a week or as quick as often as you can some people are very remote from church but we do need sometimes to be together to assemble on the Sabbath and the holy days unless illness or you know extreme distance makes it impossible but we need to remain together we need to Weekly services and Bible studies were available. We try to make the Bible studies available online for those who can get them. And that's that's important to connect. And with GoToMeeting, we can even connect you on the telephone to those Bible studies if you have a phone plan that, that works. And uh, that's important. So when we get back together, remember to assemble on the Sabbath. And Satan will make every effort to destroy you by separating you from the group. It's very important. We need to encourage each other. God inspired Paul here to write extensively about this problem. Because in the days of the apostles, Satan was making an effort to destroy the church through overt persecution and through attacks on doctrine. But Paul fully understood how weak he was against Satan and how cunning a foe we face. Paul wrote something to the church at Ephesus toward the end of his life in which he encouraged us to face down the challenges of Satan and his culture in a battle that is really a battle for our lives. Please take the words of Paul seriously as we return to our homes. So I'd like to sort of take one final part in this sermon to go through a little bit of instruction the Apostle Paul gave us in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. This advice, I'm sure, will be given to people in the millennium warning them of the threat to come at the end of the millennium. But our threat is now. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. God is powerful enough to overcome our enemies. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We need to remember this. There are some people who think they can defend themselves in the future when everything gets rough. You have some people who are, they call themselves, survivalists. They will go out in the woods and build themselves a little fortification, arm themselves to the teeth with all kinds of weapons. What use is that against a spiritual enemy? It is of no use whatsoever. So you're in a forest all hidden away and there's a forest fire. Good luck. God is our defender, not a gun, not some sort of human weaponry. We need to remember that. Paul here is trying to remind us that we need to be unwavering in our commitment and trust in the power and will of God to back us up when we are obedient. And he advises us to be armed, not with guns and knives, but rather he makes an analogy between military equipment and our spiritual preparedness. And he goes on to explain this is necessary as we are at war with spiritual powers, which are ruthless, merciless, and filled with hatred against God, filled with hatred against His law and all humans who have the potential to become members of the God family. As a soldier, one is trained to be on the lookout for danger, and a soldier relies on the physical, whether sight or sound, or electronic surveillance, or human intelligence. But Satan and his demons operate outside the physical world. And therefore, they are what we call stealth enemies. They're hard to detect, and therefore challenging to defend against. And if one is not defended, one will be a victim. And hence God causes Paul in this little section of scripture to lay out a defensive strategy that will, if implemented, defeat the attacks of Satan. Verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. God causes Paul now to describe both defensive and offensive equipment that we must develop if we want to survive this very real battle and not be like the victims at the end of the millennium. And there are seven elements that he talks about. Our life depends on this. Verse 14, the first item. Stand, therefore having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The first item he mentions is truth. And truth is a reference to the word of God. You know, in John seventeen seventeen, Christ said, your word is truth. We are told to have a knowledge of the scriptures. That's our first line of defense against deception. Jesus warned us in the Olivet Prophecy that false teachers would come. But if we know the Bible well, we have our first layer of defense. You know, it's been taught many times that we should know the Old and New Testaments. In Isaiah 8, verse 20, is a key test against a false minister. It says there in Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law... And the testimony. If they speak not according to that word, there is no light in them. They are in utter darkness. Anyone who says God's law is either done away or, well, we don't really need to keep that law, you know, we, God understands. Right away, we know they are in darkness. They don't know the truth. If they teach against the law, they are in darkness. And thus, Bible study is our first line of defense. We let that slip and Satan can breach our perimeter. And we choose how strong our defenses are and how seriously we take this admonition that Paul gives. The second item he talks about there is the breastplate of righteousness. You know, Psalm 119 verse 172 says, All thy commands are righteousness. Obeying God... And keeping his law and living in accordance with his directions is also a wall of protection. It protects us against deception. God hears those who love and obey him. And living God's way of life helps us deepen our knowledge and commitment and add much understanding. And we become more deeply converted to God's way of life. And this must be something that people at the end of the millennium stopped doing. Otherwise, they would not have been so easily overtaken by Satan. So, understand God's word. Thirdly, in verse 15, he says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The third defense is knowing and supporting the preaching of the gospel the plan of god how he's working what his purpose for man really is that's something that people who are deceived by satan at the end of the millennium either have not valued and they have not put into their thinking the gospel of god is the message delivered by jesus christ which very much includes as a central and critical part, the reason and purpose for his sacrifice, which opens the way to our membership in the kingdom of God. The gospel is just not about the kingdom. It's about how you get to the kingdom as well and the price that was paid for us. Knowing the gospel, sharing in its propagation around the world, And the truth that God is reproducing himself in humankind and offering us membership in his very universe-ruling family is an essential element. Knowing that defends us, and it gives us hope. It gives us incentive. It gives us strength to endure difficult times, knowing and deeply valuing this incredible truth. In this regard, the keeping of the Sabbath and the Holy Days also reminds us of that plan, strengthens us, and God knew we needed this and commanded these days, therefore, to be observed. And thus Paul writes that our very way of life, the way of our feet, guides our decisions and keeps us from sin. The fourth item that he talks about in verse 16, above all, Taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith is something we need to build. But how do you build faith? How do you build faith? Faith, I believe, is the most misunderstood religious word in in literature. False religion has caused man to restrict faith to a concept of simple belief. People think that faith is only belief. That is a deception. Faith, belief is a part of faith, but it is not all of faith. It is not just believing That's a clever deception of Satan. It's a lie. It's a lie that was around in the days of the apostles that James had to speak against. Notice the book of James, chapter 2. Book of James, chapter 2, and verse 14. James 2 and verse 14. He said, What does it profit, my brethren, If someone says he has faith and does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and if one says to him, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not living faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works, by what I actually do, how I change my life, he's saying. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Satan has a great deal of faith that God exists. He's spoken with him. He knows he's there. No one has more faith in God's existence than Satan the devil. But Satan is a faithless being because he does not obey God. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect and scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted for him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And he goes on with other examples. What James is saying is that true faith only exists if it impacts what you do. If you believe the truth... But you don't do it, you have no faith. Knowing the truth, believing it is true, is not faith. Knowing the truth, believing it is true, and doing it is faith. If one knows the law and one doesn't keep it, one is unfaithful. Faith is built on acting on what we know to be true. The more we do it the stronger it gets. If we act on what is true and are, as we are taught by God, we will have strong faith and it will get stronger and we will resist the attacks of Satan. The fifth and sixth items in verse 17 that uh, uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 in verse 17, He writes, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You know, the helmet guards the mind. And again, Paul is referencing knowing and studying the truth, especially respecting the sacrifice of Christ and the terrible cost that was paid so we can live forever. Reminding ourselves of that price and suffering of Christ is sobering and demonstrates how much the Father wants us to succeed. And this should be an added incentive for us to strive to please the Father. He's invested an awful lot in each one of you so that our individual cases are not lost. And that's a powerful defense against Satan if we use it. The sword of the spirit, the sixth item. This refers to the word of God. The scriptures uh, give us understanding of which we then act and we can judge right and wrong. Mankind does not know the difference in right and wrong outside of God's law. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, Hebrews, chapter four and verse 12. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit of the joint and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Asking God for more of his spirit and using the knowledge that God provides in his scriptures and living by that direction stirs up God's spirit in us, enhances our understanding and reveals to us what is truly right and wrong in different situations so we can choose right. Our actions based on truth are a powerful defense. Obedience to God is a hard defense. Satan cannot penetrate that. And finally, Ephesians 6, verse 18. It says, Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Prayer is the line of communication with our commander. Our source of strength. Jesus took time to outline for us how to pray. You've all referenced that, Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13, the topics that we should be thinking about. And Paul speaks of many things for which we should pray in all of his writing. You will note that Jesus commanded us First to pray for the kingdom to come, for the time that we're picturing here at the millennium, and the time of God's rule on the earth even after the millennial rule of Christ. We need to realize how important it is to pray every day. If we suffer pain or have a big problem, sometimes it's easier to pray to bring ourselves to pray. When everything is really good and we're sort of happy and cheerful, um, it doesn't seem quite so urgent. But we need to make it urgent because it is. We can sense just how much we need God. We need to sense that. And we need to realize how dangerous being distant from God is and distance from God's law is. How about your children or your grandchildren? You know, Even schooling in many parts of Canada has changed. We need to be aware of that. In some provinces, schools, even religious schools, are forced to teach against their doctrinal beliefs. An acquaintance of mine, John Carpe, who's a lawyer in Calgary, has defended, for example, I think uh, several Catholic private schools here in Quebec were being forced to teach against Catholic doctrine. And he successfully defended them in the Supreme Court. But it's, the challenge is growing. About a year ago, I received a notice while at the feast that there is a current challenge to Supreme Court of Canada against a particular law in Ontario. It is led by a lawyer named uh, Eugene Meehan, Eugene Meehan is an author of 14 books on Canadian law. He's the former executive legal officer of the Supreme Court of Canada and the president of the Canadian Bar Association. And he wrote this. He said, by encroaching denominational aspects of a school's function for the purpose of preventing prejudice, Bill 13, which is the Ontario law, oxymoronically risks prejudicing minority religious groups. Instead of fostering respect for diversity of beliefs and school choice, it risks encouraging and endorsing a single point of view and nullifying the purpose of denominational or religious schools. What it really means is that there is an overt attempt to force all schools to teach what the government wants to be taught and the rights of parents will be lost. That's a real danger. And uh, it's a danger to religious freedom, which is significantly at risk. John Carpe is currently defending that particular case in association with the Alliance for Defending Freedom in the United States He works with them. And we need to be praying that God will provide protection for our beliefs and our children. We need to value each other. We're in a dangerous time. So as we return home, how can we prevent Satan, who is free and at large, in the time in which we live from doing to us what he has predicted to achieve at the end of the millennium. Eight points we've covered. One, know the Bible well. Study it daily. Two, practice the law of God. Keep the commandments. Three, Review and study the meaning of the gospel. What we believe and why we believe it. Four, build faith by practicing obedience to God in every way. Five, remember the cost of our salvation and how much God thinks of us. God the Father gave Jesus Christ as your sacrifice. That's how much he loves every human on this earth. The Father has great zeal for you. So does Christ. And we need to remember that. Remember the price paid for your salvation. Six, use God's Spirit. You know, heed the understanding that God's Spirit gives you. Seven, pray fervently for the kingdom to come and for the things that the church needs to fulfill the mission that is given to us. And to pray also, as Paul said, for the government leaders that we have so they will make decisions that enable us to lead a peaceful life and finish the mission that God has given to us. And attend, number eight, be with the brethren. Attend services as regularly as possible. And through these we can overcome our human nature, overcome the influences of this evil world, and defeat the efforts of Satan to cause us to sin and rebel against God, and so die forever. Because that's what he's going to do at the end of the millennium. And these strategies that Paul inspired to write for us, we we should use them aggressively, not passively. Take the initiative. We must not get locked down in a mood of defense, but vigorously to do the work of God, to build our character, to be good employees, to be honorable people, supportive, loyal to our families through the tools that Paul describes, be good examples to all around us. And if we do this, we will not fall victim, as those at the end of the millennium will, to this evil being who wishes for us not to enjoy what we have been picturing here this week. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles carries with it a warning as we go back home, that we must be vigilant. And yet it also carries an enormous hope of a much better time that will be achieved. We have a great calling. Our God wants very much for us to succeed. For you to be working with him forever. That's what he wants. He gave his life for you. And as a soldier who returns to the front... You've been refreshed and equipped with what you need to be successful. And the words God gave to Joshua as he was about to take on excuse me <coughs> take on a great mission are what God speaks to you and me, so we will not fall victim to Satan. So let's close with Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter one. And verse 7. These are Jesus Christ's words to Joshua before entering the promised land. They're also his words to all of us as we go forward to do the work, to fulfill the mission that he has given. He says in verse 7 only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So it's been a pleasure being here at the feast with you in Quebec. I'm sorry I can't get to know everyone well. But uh, in time, hopefully we will. But I do pray you'll have a wonderful year and stay strong and together in God's work as we get it done together. Thank you.